So I've been carrying this quote around with me for the entire retreat, thinking, when am I going to use it? When am I going to use it? I really want to use it. Really, I think it fits for tonight, but I'm going to read it to you. It's a really short one. It's from Alan Watts. And he says, There will always be suffering, but we must not suffer over the suffering. (laughs) So that's the trick, isn't it? How do we not suffer over the suffering? So I wanted to talk tonight about gratitude and what I have come to call the path of gratitude. And, you know, the last day of the retreat, it's always so sweet. And um, I'm not going to be here again for quite a long time, so I'm treasuring every minute of the grasses and the trees and the deer and the crickets. And, and, you know, talked to a lot of people today. And pretty much to a person, they've talked about how grateful they are to have been here. Sometimes there's a little thread of greed for wishing there were more. But there's definitely, consistently, a lot of gratitude. And um, I've been thinking a lot in the recent months about a book I read quite some time ago uh, by David Steindlwest, who's a very interesting Benedictine Catholic priest. He's also a Zen practitioner. He just turned 90. And he wrote a book called Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. And I met him once, a long time ago. It's a good story, so I'm going to tell you. I had gone to Esalen to teach. And, of course, down at Esalen, there are these wonderful baths that are hot. And you, they are right on the edge of the cliff. So you're soaking in the hot water and you're looking out at the Pacific Ocean. Fabulous. So it was not a retreat, and I had some free time. And I went down to the baths, and, you know, it's a clothing-optional thing. So um, there's a tub, and it's got an assortment of people in it, men and women, and they're having a quite lively conversation. And I got in, and there's this really interesting guy, and he's talking, older man, and pretty soon I think, I think that's Brother David. Now, you don't usually meet Catholic priests stark naked in the hot tub, you know, you don't. And I listened for a while longer, and finally I said, are you Brother David? And yes, indeed, it was Brother David, which led to a wonderful conversation, and then we later had a chance to have a meal together and talk about his practice, and we talked about the Dalai Lama, and we talked about Vipassana. He's a truly amazing man. I completely recommend him to you. So I've been, as I've thought about him in recent months, I've also been watching some of his videotapes. You can find him easily on YouTube and the TED Talks and that kind of thing, reading some, some of his writings. And I wanted to share some of my thinking around gratitude with you. So we live in a really difficult world. It's a really difficult. It has not gotten any better in the week that you've been here without your devices. 
You know, it's still difficult. It's still got some big problems. I don't think anything really big has happened, but you know, it's tough. So we've got the imminent crisis of global warming. We've got all of the terrorist acts that keep happening. And we have all the issues around racism and sexism and poverty and war. And we have a presidential election going on that absolutely boggles the mind. And it can seem overwhelming. It can seem really, really overwhelming. Merwin, W.S. Merwin, wrote a poem some time ago called Thanks. I'm just going to read you the end of it. And he says, with animals dying around us, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you, we are saying, and waving, dark though it is. So how do we do that? How do we say thank you, even when it's so dark, when it's sometimes dark in our interior lives, or whether we're looking at the darkness of the world? Where is the joy in all of this mess? Or even, if you're on retreat, where's the joy in 32 body parts? I mean, really, some of them are a little disgusting. And so how do we find joy by doing this recitation and doing this practice? Mindfulness can seem really pretty dry, can't it, on occasion? You know, it doesn't. Seems like somebody said, everybody looks so grim. And, you know, it's just really because you're all pulled in. There's lots of laughter, as we know. But it seems kind of devoid of joy and laughter, at least some of the time. And it's a struggle. It's a piece of work to be here and to keep coming back into the present moment. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of concentration. And why would anybody want to do it anyway, given how difficult the world is? So, Brother David says, the root of joy is gratefulness. It's not joy that makes us grateful. It's gratitude that makes us joyful. So that's an interesting comment, that gratitude is what brings the joy. So I want to explore a little bit tonight how we can bring that gratitude into our practice and how we can find that joy. So we've been exploring the paths of mindfulness this week, finding ways, as I said, to stay in the present moment with an open and allowing heart, whatever comes up in the moment, that's where your practice is. We've particularly grounded in the body and in those 32 and even more parts. And in a way, it's been a process which to some extent cleanses the mind and the heart from greed and hatred and delusion so that we can see clearly and we can have more moments of freedom. We've had lots of instructions based on this foundation of the body and today we included the other foundations of mindfulness, the foundation of the feeling tones, the pleasant and unpleasant and neither, 
flavors of our experience and the states of the mind and the heart. So I want to look first at opening the heart. How do we do this, given such a troubled and worrisome world? So I'd like to invite you to do a little guided practice with me. So to close your eyes for a minute. And we're going to be in the imaginal realm. You don't have to get all gussied up in your posture for sitting. Just close your eyes. (laughs) Just close your eyes. So you can imagine that you are members of a small monastic community. And it's many hundreds of years ago. It happens to be here in California. I don't think there were any here then, but we can imagine that. And it's located some miles away. And you've come here to this beautiful spot in the coastal hills to visit for a few days and to receive some teachings from the Buddha. And so you've had those teachings and it's time to go home. And you're going to be walking several miles home at night. And you're going to be going up and down over the steep ridges. If you've climbed into our hills, you know how steep they are. Down into the ravines, through the forests. There aren't any flashlights or headlamps in these days because it's a long time ago. So maybe there's a couple of carefully guarded, wavering torches because it's dry and late in the season at the beginning and at the end of your little procession. Not much light. And you know there are wild animals out there. There's mountain lions and coyotes and skunks and things like that. And you believe there are mischievous tree spirits who are lurking. So you, you as a member of this community, are very very scared of what might lie ahead in the dark on that long walk. So you go to the Buddha before you leave and you say, what should we do? What, what can we do to protect us on this long walk? And so the Buddha says that he has some instructions for you, a practice for you to use and perhaps to chant as you walk through the dark. And this is what he gives you. He says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. Whether the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. 
Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into the world of suffering. So you can open your eyes now. So we've been monks and nuns this week. This has been our little vihara here. That's what they call a residence for monks and nuns. And um, some of you have been hiking in those hills. And everyone has been hiking in the wilderness of the mind and the heart. And it's not been easy. And sometimes some of you have been overwhelmed by the kinds of things that come up. And... um, the the purification process. And sometimes we've been really anxious and afraid. You know, there have been some of us who have been really worried about the retreat and how we were doing and afraid of our own hearts and minds sometimes and afraid of our memories or afraid of our lives, what we've done in the past or what is lying ahead as we leave the retreat, afraid of the retreat itself. And of course, when the mind is filled with fear and upset, there isn't any room for joy. So how do we counter fear? That seems like the first step. How do we counter fear with an open heart? So that's what I want to look at first, is a little bit about fear. Because you are all going home tomorrow, and that can be pretty scary, actually, to leave the retreat, the containment here. So... You know, it's common to all of us. We're all afraid. And we have that contraction of the mind and the heart that happens. And it can be lots of things. It can be fear of a new job or fear of not having any job at all or the fear of you realize as you're sitting here you have to confront your best beloved about something that really needs to be done or cleared up between you or the terrible fear that can come as you watch children grow and move out into this dangerous adult world. I actually gave a talk kind of like this a a few months ago, and I had just been in Texas uh, with my younger daughter and grandchildren, and I have a grandson who is 16, and at that point he was learning to drive. And I got to ride in the car, in the back seat while he was driving with his mother next to him. And it was um, interesting (laughs) and a little scary. But you know, three weeks ago, he now has his license. Three weeks ago, he had a really terrible accident. 
and he flipped his car twice. And amazingly enough, he walked out of it totally uninjured. I don't know how he did it, but it was one of those moments, right, where oh, he's my, I saw him being born, you know, I saw him being born. And to have him, to have him in danger of dying, long before I hope I'm going to die, was breathtaking and very, very frightening. He's okay. I just saw, I've seen him since the accident. And, you know, he's 16. He's been kind of tough, but um, he'll be all right, I think. And so we've seen how fear can come in simpler ways here on the cushion, you know, the anxiety about the silence or about, as I said, about the material that comes up. And then, of course, for many of us, and I've had so many conversations here with the older end of the community, about, you know, we're coming to the end. We are. We're coming to the ends of our lives. And so there's the fear of death. What will happen? How will it happen? You know, as I said to one group I was talking to today, who's going to change my diapers? You know, when I need that. That's a scary kind of question. Fear is pervasive. We all have it. And so it's important to become a student of your fear, to really learn about it and to notice what it is so that we can best work with it. So here's some things you might notice. Fear is not about the present moment. Isn't that interesting? The present moment might be really tough, might be very, very difficult. The bear might have your elbow, but if the bear is grabbing onto your elbow, you know what's going on in your mind. What happens if he grabs my head, right? It's, it's the next thing. Somehow we cope with the, the it might be, we're just barely manageable, but we manage to do it. Fear is focused on a solid and concrete sense of self. It's about me. It's usually centered around a particular outcome, and there's lots and lots of attachment. And we often contract, and it may seem even like there's not so much room to breathe in even, and we need that room. And I think of those poor monks and nuns hiking back to their monastery in the night. I mean, you can imagine what it must have been like. And that's us. We're scared of the night. We're scared of the dark. So what to do? So being mindful certainly does help. It really does help. But you'll notice the Buddha didn't say to do that, did he? He didn't say, oh, just relax pay attention to the sensations of your feet on the ground and, you know, and notice what you're seeing and just follow your breath and you'll be fine. He didn't say that. He gave them this teaching about opening the heart, about loving kindness, about meeting all beings, every being, omitting none, one of my favorite lines in that sutta. So, it's really a question of how do we begin to meet our experience differently. I came across a line today from, actually from Thomas Edison, you know, the person who 
discovered electricity and all of that. And he said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> uh, cool, you know, a really different way to meet that experience. It's not failing, it's just one of the ways that doesn't work. So how do we change our minds? How do we change the way we meet our experience? And sometimes maybe the question comes, can this even be done? Is it possible? Now, I'd like to think that the five of us wouldn't be sitting up here if we didn't think it could happen. And if we hadn't experienced that our minds could, ch could change. And I actually suspect that all of this, all of Spirit Rock and this amazing campus and retreat center that Spirit Rock is, also would not exist if minds and hearts did not actually change. After six days of sitting, you may have some opinions about your mind and heart, and probably all of them are not good. And that is, of course, the problem. So again, it's how do we end our suffering? You know, how do we not suffer about what suffering is there? How do we become free, and how can we not be afraid? So it is helpful to consider that what you're doing here is mind training. I love that word, mind training. This mind needs to be trained, just like your body does when you go to yoga class or qigong or pilates or the gym, whatever it is that you do. We train our bodies and we need to train our minds and we train it to be present in the moment and we train it to hold ourselves and others with kindness and we're learning then to create that space for gratitude. So we're training for the obstacles that we're going to meet because we all will, just as you would if you were going to um, climb Mount Everest. So a few years ago when, when I made that move to Hawaii, I found out really shortly after we had been there, I hadn't been there more than a couple of months, that I was going to have to have the first of this long series of retinal surgeries for my eyes. And I was really scared. I mean, messing with your eye is you know, it's definitely frightening. And I wasn't sure how I could get through it. And what was I, I, I wasn't, you know, I felt kind of <laughs> alone there on the island. And even though we knew the community fairly well, we hadn't lived there full time, and you know, it was, it was different. And I can tell you that there have now been five surgeries and multiple other treatments, and I'm often pretty grumpy and cranky about the whole thing. And I'm still sometimes pretty scared, but not always. Because I think what I've begun to learn with some of the things that I uncovered as I went into this, and I'm going to talk about, that uh, I could move again and again into a space of some gratitude. For one thing, really simply, 50 years ago, if this had happened to me, I'd be blind. And that would have been the end of it. I might have a little tiny bit of sight, but not much. So just that, you know, I can sit here and I can see all of you, and without my glasses, some of you are pretty blurry, but by now I kind of know who's shaped in which way and where you're sitting and all of that. 
so I can see you. And if I sit down with you face to face, I can see your faces. And it's wonderful. So we prepared. I prepared and you prepare. And I did some with the basic practice of mindfulness. You know, there's a wonderful acronym called RAIN for mindfulness, which says recognize, accept, investigate, and non-identify. With all of our experience, RAIN. And so that was part of it, was just learning to sit with myself and and we learn to sit with ourselves and to and just to allow that is a powerful act of compassion and kindness. Last night, or the night before last, I guess, Christ, when the night I wasn't here, I know that Christiane talked about the trainings, some of the trainings of the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness and compassion and um, gladness and equanimity. And I think she stressed kindness and compassion. This is true. And so we've touched on those practices here and um, really working with sending kindness and compassion to ourselves. And this afternoon, I believe, gratitude for the body. All those different parts got thanked. So there's some other teachings, though, that I was working with during that time that I thought I would talk about a little bit tonight um, because I found them hugely helpful in really working with difficulties as part of my practice and then being able to move into that place where I could be grateful. And they come from a Tibetan practice, um, the practice of Lojong. Um, and there's been, my friend Norman Fisher wrote a book called Training in, Training in Compassion some years ago, which was the book that I was using. Um, and I've read it and studied it a lot since then. So these are just a few of those phrases and teachings from that book. <laughs> One of them, they're very pithy, especially in Norman's version. And sometimes they're even a little bit amusing. And so one says, turn things around. Turn things around. So what does that mean? You know, so we have lots of habitual knee-jerk reactions to things. And you've seen that, I'm sure, some this week. We like this, we don't like this. Greed arises, aversion and hatred arise. And there are, they, these things become poisons in the mind and the heart, and they get very mixed up and compounded. I'm greedy, I want something, and then I'm upset and aversive because I'm greedy, and then I deny the whole thing. No, not me, I'm not greedy and I'm not aversive, in which case I'm probably deluded because there you have it. And then I'm aversive about the whole thing. Oh dear, I'm so deluded, how can I be that crazy? And so you get this incredible tangled mess of greed and hatred and delusion. And then, of course, you're sitting there wishing you could be happier and more enlightened and more awake, and you're still in it. So this teaching says, turn it around, turn it around. So I'm going to read you one of my favorite retreat poems about turning things around. It's by Billy Collins, and it's called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. Some of you have heard me read this before, but I do love it. It's a good one about turning things around. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. 
they must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for the barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. So, you know, to take something, I mean, even just to take it and turn it enough so there's some humor in it. But we have to be willing to meet our experience. Closing the windows in the house didn't do it, right? We have to be able to be present with it and not to turn away. So we see, oh, My anger is like this. My fear is like this. My desire is like this. And, you know, you're not the only person who's angry or fearful or filled with desire. That's the beauty of these small group practice discussions that we've been having. You begin to hear, oh, look, there's other people who are struggling the same way I am exactly the same way. Some people are even having bigger struggles. Mine begin to look pretty good, you know? Years ago, when I was quite young, I was doing a series um, of retreats in a completely other spiritual tradition, Catholic, actually. And um, it was a they were sort of unusual for the time, but now probably wouldn't be. And you spent time talking about your own experience. And I was astounded to hear these other women and even some men, some of the priests, talking about the fact that they were afraid that no one liked them. I went, what? I thought that was just me. I'm the only person who think Everybody else knows that everybody likes them, right? But I found out that I wasn't alone, that it was, there were lots of people. When you go into the doctor's office or you're lying there in the surgery suite, you're not the only one who is afraid. It's very helpful to remember that, actually, and to open the heart with some kindness and compassion. So then another teaching says, turn all mishaps into the path. Well, that's a tough one and an interesting one because that means there's nothing outside the realm of practice. Isn't that great? There's nothing outside the realm of practice. No matter what comes up, remember that thing I read the other night? You know, you take the wrong turn, that's your way. No matter what comes up, This is your path for right now. It's not a mistake. It's not something 
that you can say, well, that's just not my path. I'm going to get it out of the way. So, you know, you get a cold and you're coughing and sneezing through a retreat. That's your path. You get a flat tire. That's your path. Your mind is contracted and restless and scattered today. That's your path. You don't like lunch. You know, that didn't appeal to you. That's your path. Over and over. It's one of the things I've been really working with as my life changes. This is the path. So, like I said the other day, there I am teaching about volcanoes in the park. You know, well, this is my path. Now, I will confess, I try to put a little stealth mindfulness in there, you know. As we're standing here, please realize that you are standing in the volcano. Take a big breath and feel what is it like to stand in the volcano. Or I'm dancing with a hula group, a halau, we call it in Hawaii. And halau is like a school. And there are a lot of protocols in hula. I think of it as the Zen of hula. It's a very precise way to do things and to do them properly. You don't chant with your hands behind your back. You chant with your hands by your side. Things like that that are, you know, they can seem really fussy, but they become a practice. And that's my path. I don't know, how did I get to have hula as a path? You know, lying on the operating table was my path, is my path. So the, the teaching is, can we be curious with all of these things? How can I use this event? You can't wait for the next best event. How can I use this event as part of my path? Curiosity is wonderful. It's one of the most important qualities that we can bring to our practice. There's a teaching in the set that talks about, it says, drive all blames into one. So that's kind of, what does that mean? Hard to parse it out. But it really means that you're not putting it all on someone else, you know? It means, it doesn't mean that you blame yourself for everything that happens. It just means that blaming isn't fruitful, you know? It's not fruitful. Even if it is someone else, someone else caused this thing. But the real question in any given situation is, what can you do about it? What can you do about it? How can you use this situation to wake up? It's a challenge. It demands that we take the responsibility for our own happiness and the happiness of others in any situation as best we can. And then we get to gratitude. And it says, be grateful to everyone. This is everyone. Be grateful to everyone. Every being is your teacher. Every being. All of those people out there in the political world, they are your teacher. You know? It's not easy to swallow sometimes. Part One way of holding this teaching that I've loved for a long time says every being is enlightened but one. And you know who that one is. And they're all doing what they're doing to help you wake up. 
They are your teachers. Every being, every event is your teacher. So what that means is, in Brother David's words, everything is a gift. The degree to which we are awake to this truth is a measure of our gratefulness, and gratefulness is a a measure of our aliveness. Everything is a gift, even the tough stuff. And that's where we open to joy. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling of presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. That's from David White. So everything is our teacher. If the heart closes, if we're overcome with greed and hatred and delusion, this is your teacher. You see, in those moments, you see where you're not cooked yet. You're not finished. You're not awake. How great to see that. If you don't see it, then you're really in trouble. So even those tough moments are teachers and we can be grateful for them. We can really see our own confusion as the Buddha himself. One of the teachings in these and open to that. Here is confusion. Confusion is like this. And begin to see that when we even hold our confusion, that dark, scrambled mess of things, and get spacious around it, then it begins to change. And there's even space in there for gratitude. And here's my most favorite from that list. It says, do good. That's pretty simple. We're all agreed on that one. Avoid evil, also pretty, not so simple always, but we're pretty much agreed on it. Appreciate your lunacy. Appreciate your lunacy and pray for help. (laughs) So appreciating where we're crazy, that's an interesting place. Can we appreciate our own insanity? Can we meet it with some sense of respect and humor Sometimes, you know, sometimes I can have 
once in a while the ability to sit back and go, oh my God, Mary Grace Orr is nuts. What is this personality doing this time? You know? And it's, I can see that it's crazy. It's maybe not even very skillful. But sometimes there's a little humor in that. And of course, the minute you can do that, there's also a place where there's some space and you can begin to work it. And do ask for help. Ask for help. You can ask teachers. That's what we're here for. You can ask your friends. You can ask all beings. You can ask the tea kettle in David White's poem. You can ask the saints and the Buddha and the Blessed Mother and the devas to help you in whatever it is that you need. It's not the answer, actually, that's so important. It's the knowing that you need to ask for help. That's the big one. That's the big one. Whatever you meet is the path. Again, there's nothing that's outside practice. This is so important as you go home. It's so easy to see what we've been doing here. This is the real thing. This is the practice. You know, and people get hooked on going to retreats sometimes. I and mean, people will go to endless retreats week after week, year after year, because that's practice. But it's the events of everyday life that are just as much your practice. Getting into your car or the airport shuttle tomorrow or whatever you're doing, that's practice. Going through the TSA security or sitting down at your kitchen table for the first time or dealing with your partner who is angry because you've been gone all week or at least mildly irritated but probably not telling you or maybe if you're in a relationship that's sexual there comes a point where that's happening that's your practice it's not something else it's all practice are these my teachers Yes. Are these my practice? Yes. It's all practice. It's important to come back always to motivation. We come back to the basic teachings. We come back to the teaching that there can be an end to suffering and to the stress and the distress in our lives. There are obstacles because greed, hatred, and delusion, the, the hindrances, there are awakening factors that can support our waking up. We referred to them a couple of times, although we haven't really talked about them. But they're tools that we can bring to our situation. You can bring your awareness and investigation and the energy to practice. And you can bring the happiness that comes as you really enter into your experience, no matter what it is and any calm that you have available to you, and concentration, and equanimity. You're actually headed tomorrow into the second half of the retreat. This, this is the next half of the retreat. And we really invite you, as you go into this next half of the retreat, you can really hold this next seven days, this is the second piece, and bring to that seven days the same quality of intention with an open heart, when with gratitude for everything that comes to meet you in that time. 
Brother David likes to teach this really simple practice. Some of the things I like about his teachings, they're so simple, so available. And he's, he reminds us all of when you learn to cross streets. You know, we all learned to cross streets back when we were kids. So you stop, right? And you look. You see if it's clear. And then you go. Stop, look, go. So he is saying you stop and you look. Where is the place that I can be grateful in this moment? Whatever, it might be just this big, but there's always something. And then you go, because you've got it. You can do this anywhere, in any situation, no matter how hard it is. One more poem. William Stafford, and he says, Sometimes from sorrow, for no reason, you sing. For no reason you accept the way of being lost, cutting loose from all else and electing a world where you go where you want to. Arbitrary, a sound comes, a reminder that a steady center is holding all else. If you listen, that sound will tell you where it is and you can slide your way past trouble. Certain twisted monsters always bar the path. But that's when you get going best, glad to be lost, learning how real it is here on earth again and again. So pay attention, open the heart, change your mind, and be grateful for all of it because it's all a gift and it's all practice. And as we learn to do this, as we learn to give thanks for all of life and death and for all this in this given world of ours, then we can find that deep joy. That is a joy that is of trust and has a sense of confidence in the world and the heart of all things. So it's the joy of gratefulness that's in touch with the fullness of life. Being grateful ends suffering. Interesting, huh? Being grateful ends suffering. And the place of gratitude is the place of freedom. So let's breathe together for just a moment. Stay just as you are. Again, no fancy positions. Just breathe. Relax and breathe. Certain twisted monsters always bar the path, but that's when you get going best. Glad to be lost, learning how real it is here on earth again and again. Gratitude ends suffering. So thank you very much for your attention and for your listening. Please enjoy your walking on this beautiful night 
And please be very, very protective of the silence. We're still in silence. It's a great treasure to have one more night and be really careful so that we can all rest in it. So, thank you. And again, please don't wait for me tonight because it'll take me a while to clean up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.